Welcome to episode number 272. I don't know about you guys, but this has been an odd year in the garden, which also makes it a little bit of a odd year when it comes to preserving and putting up the produce. Now, I know many of you have also run into not being able to get canning supplies or sometimes other supplies that we normally rely on and have never really had issues with supplies before when it comes to our preserving equipment. So I'm going to give you in today's episode the tips that we're using and places that you can look and maybe find things to combat all of this and still have preserved some of your fresh garden produce. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, a fifth-generation homesteader who got back to her roots of using simple, modern homesteading for a healthier and more self-sufficient life after a cancer scare in my late 20s. This is the place for you, my friend, if you sometimes wondered if you weren't born a hundred years too late. If you've always thought that you and Laura Ingalls would be best friends, And if you think that every home and kitchen would be better if they were filled with mason jars and cast iron and those things were used daily with homegrown and homemade food. If that is you, then welcome home and welcome to this amazing community of modern pioneers. I know many of you are like me, and this year we were really depending upon our garden produce in order to preserve and put it up so that we had our pantries and our shelves very well stocked with food as we go into the fall and winter months during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, really, if you've been following me for any amount of time or you've been interested in homesteading and self-sufficiency, we're really not doing anything very new. We've always been focused on putting up as much food as we could from our own land, just like the homesteaders of old. And maybe it's not from your garden. You might not have a large garden space yet, or you can't grow all the things that you would like to put up, but you take advantage of local farmers markets and CSAs and even buying produce in bulk from the grocery stores and then preserving it and putting it up at home so you don't have to go out and buy it during the off-growing season months. The homesteaders of old and farmers of old, of course, before we had all of our large agriculture and stores and supermarkets and that type of thing, it was just a normal way of life. And I was really fortunate enough to be brought up in that. My dad was born during the Great Depression, so he was a child during the Great Depression, but obviously my grandparents raised him and their children through the Great Depression. And even when the Great Depression ended, they still lived with growing and producing their own food. And quite frankly, if they hadn't produced their own food, then they would have went hungry. So that is always stuck with my dad. And you can actually listen to that episode. If you have not listened to that episode yet, we will link it in the show notes and the blog post that accompanies this episode. You can always find those at melissakunoris.com forward slash 272. So the number 272, because this is episode number 272. And you can go and take a listen to that episode and hear what it was like growing up in that time from my dad himself. But that definitely shaped him. So therefore, he raised me with that 
thought process and practicing those skills and putting that into practice. And so it's always really carried over for me. So I have to say going into this that it's not really anything new, but the pressure, I guess, for lack of a better word, or the uncertainty with what might be happening come this fall and winter with this new precedence of the COVID-19 and all of those things, we put up more than we ever had before. I purchased canning lids and extra jars and supplies well in advance. So in March, when this first hit, I told my husband, I said, we're going to make sure that we have enough canning lids and jars to take us through all the way through into next summer, if at all possible. So I purchased from all of my bulk sources that were available to me. And most of them are now, unfortunately, saying out of stock for this year. They're going to try to meet their back orders that they have. They're not taking any new orders. But I know many of you are not in that boat. You didn't have a back supply of canning lids and supplies and you're trying to find them now when you've got the produce, but you're like, I don't know how to get this all preserved up because I'm having a really hard time finding things. So I'm going to talk to and address that first. Of course, I'm starting with canning because canning for me is my favorite form of food preservation for the fact that the food is ready to go. It's shelf stable without any type of electricity, without anything special. It doesn't matter if the power goes out, if the power stays on. My food is always safe on the shelf, ready to go. I don't have to have extra water to rehydrate anything. And that is why I really do love canning. To me, it is one of my favorite and our most relied upon type of food preservation. Plus, not going to lie, on those nights where you're busy, which I feel like we're always busy come supper time. If I don't have anything planned, I know I can just go to the shelf, grab a couple jars down, pop some lids, reheat, mix things up together. Or if I've got soup, then we can just serve soup and I'll do it with bread or a side or something. But I really love it for that aspect too. I can get meals and food on the table in a quick hurry <laughs> and, and we're ready to go. But there's lots of other different for- types of food preservation that may lend themselves better than canning, especially if you can't find canning supplies. But I wanted to say at the time of this recording, some places you can look for to find your canning supplies. Now, pressure canners are hard to come by right now. A lot of them are on back order. So definitely keep checking with the websites. And if they're showing in stock, then get them ordered. But they may be difficult to acquire new right now. You can get them used You do want to make sure that you get the dial gauges checked if that's what you're relying on, if it doesn't have that weighted gauge on there. If it has a rubber seal, you want to make sure that that rubber seal is in good condition, have a backup. And if you do have your pressure canner, it's in good working order, you may want to look at getting some replacement supplies. So there are things that can break on on pressure canners, the over pressure relief plug If you get a buildup of too much pressure, can go out and then you'd have to replace that. Vent pipes, if something gets damaged on the vent pipe, you absolutely have to have a good and working order vent pipe. So there's replacement vent pipes. There's replacement, the geared or dial gauge where it shows the number and it's got like a little dial that goes up. Uh, Backup weighted pressure gauge that goes on where you select the 5, 10 or 15 pounds because if that gets lost... I really don't know how you could ever damage one of those, to be honest. (laughs) And I have never lost mine. I've had my own pressure canner for 21 plus years now. But in the event that it got lost, you cannot use your pressure canner to can with. So it's not a bad idea to look at having some of these backup supplies just in case. Now, when it comes to water bath canning, you don't actually have to have a water bath canner. As long as you have a pot that is deep enough for the jars when they're filled with food and they have their lids on and their bands, 
that the water level covers the top of the jar by at least one to two inches and you have some type of rack in the bottom so that the jar is lifted up off of the bottom of the pan. Of course, if you buy a water bath canner, they come with racks, but you can use your extra bands and put them in the bottom to create a homemade rack. Some people will twist up dish towels so that the jars aren't sitting directly against the burner or the bottom of the pot. So you definitely have some makeshift ways that you can water bath can, acidic foods only. And I go over this in depth in my full canning course, but I also have a free four-part canning safety and video series. If you've not canned before or you're not sure like, well, what makes a canning recipe safe? Can I can this via water bath? Does it have to be canned via pressure canner? I highly recommend, highly recommend going through that four-part video series. It will give you a foundation for updated, tested, and safe canning. And then you will be able to look at recipes and ingredients and be like, oh, nope, this has to be processed this way. And here's the science behind it and why. So highly recommend that. You can get that at melissacanoris.com forward slash pressure canning, or I'll have the links, like I said, into in today's show notes and blog post. Now, canning lids, though, because you really cannot can, obviously, without canning lids and without canning jars. Hardware stores are a great place, especially Ace Hardware stores. Check your hardware stores first. Grocery stores, local, smaller, independent grocery stores uh, often will still have supplies. So if you've got some smaller grocery stores, definitely check their shelves. If your big box stores are out of stock, check your hardware stores. As I said, in our area of the country, Ace Hardware stores usually keep those. Check your feed stores. Now, not all feed stores, but some feed stores do have home food preservation supplies. So you can check there for jars and canners and lids and all of those things. Online, Sometimes you'll find them. I've never purchased canning supplies very rarely off of Amazon just because they've always been a bit of a price gouger compared to what you could get in the store, to be honest. Um, You know, checking those places is where I have still seen supplies. Now, check with the stores like bigger stores. I don't personally shop at Walmart, but I know some people do. You can check with those stores because they'll get a shipment in, but it's selling out so fast that it's only there for a day or two. So you can check with them and ask them, hey, when's your next shipment coming in? And then make sure you are there on the day that that comes in so that you can get some of your canning supplies that way. Now, there also is the Tatler canning lids. Those are the only type of canning lids that are safe to reuse time and again. They have, they're have a two-piece system. They have a rubber seal, and then they have a white lid that goes on them and they're two separate pieces and then you use your regular canning bands. They are more of an upfront investment. They are more expensive and the rubber seals can be used multiple times, but not forever. Usually about, you know, usually about between five and eight times you can reuse that rubber seal and then you'll need to check it to make sure that it's still in good condition. The white lids you can use, those don't aren't really going to wear out on you nearly as fast as the white seals, but they are definitely a multiple use, so you can use those multiple times. I have to tell you, though, I have to give you full disclosure, while I want to love them and say that they are the answer to everything canning because they are reusable, I have a higher seal failure rate with them, meaning that when I do a canner full, so say my canner full would be seven quarts, I can fit seven quarts into my canner then usually at least one of the seven quarts will not seal. Now, on the flip, if I'm using the regular metal canning lids, which most of us are familiar with, I can close to 400, give or take a few, every single year jars of food. And of that, I maybe will have two jars 
from the whole year that don't seal when I'm using the metal lids versus one in seven or whatever the canning load may be if it's pints that can fit more in there with the Tatler lids. Once the Tatler lids have sealed, so once they seal, they do stay sealed. Like I've never had an issue of them ever coming unsealed, but I have a harder time getting them to seal. So I'm just just putting that out there because <laughs> I just want to be totally upfront and honest with you. And they are a more expensive upfront investment. But there are many different ways to preserve our food that doesn't involve canning. And in fact, not every food should be canned or even can be canned. Items like broccoli and cauliflower. Well, cauliflower you can pickle, but you can't pressure can. And there are definitely items that you cannot pressure can. Zucchini, summer squash are, is some of those items. Like I said, broccoli is one of those items. And especially if you don't have the canning supplies. And canning is not always the best thing if you don't have a large enough amount to really bother with. So some people will can just a couple of jars of food. Now, when it comes to operating your pressure canner, you do have to have a certain volume of jars in most of your pressure canners for it to actually get up to the correct pressure, pounds of pressure, which we need inside the pressure canner. So most people, I would never advise pressure canning one jar of food. But with a water bath canner, you can water bath can a few jars of food if you so wished. But most people don't like to put the amount of work in to can for just doing one or two jars at a time, especially when it comes to things like your cucumbers and or your tomatoes. At the beginning, well, and actually this isn't even at the beginning for me, but oftentimes at the beginning of the harvest season, you'll just get a few ripe tomatoes or you'll just have a few cucumbers that are large enough to harvest, but it's not enough to really do a jar or to do a full recipe with. Now with tomatoes and berries, I will just put those in the freezer, wait till I get enough, then thaw them out and do up a recipe. But that does not work with cucumbers. It doesn't work with green beans. So instead, that's where my fermenting comes in. Fermenting is fabulous when you have smaller amounts of produce to do and you want to get that preserved up. And especially if you can't find or don't have the canning equipment, all you need is a glass mason jar or a fermenting crock in order to ferment your food. Now, there are glass weights, but you can do impromptu weights. There are the airlock system lids that do help prevent mold, I have to say, but you don't have to have them. You really can do it with very minimal equipment. You just need the produce, salt, and sometimes water. If you're doing things like sauerkraut or cortito, which is a form of sauerkraut, kimchi, then you're just using salt. If it's very, if it's cabbage-based, you're usually just using salt. You're not actually creating a brine. If you're doing things like fermented cucumbers, fermented green beans, other items like that, then you will create a salt water brine in order to ferment them. And my fermenting recipe for my favorite garlic dill fermented cucumber pickles is up on the website. I will make sure that I've linked to it so you can go and grab that guide and that recipe. But that works really ideal when you have smaller amounts of produce. That's really what I do like if, when I've got one or two heads of cabbage. Now, of course, you can do much more larger volume if you've got fermenting crocs, which I do have a fermenting crocs. So you can do a lot larger volume. But the other thing with fermenting is once it has went through its fermentation at room temperature, then it does need to be moved into cold storage for long-term storage, which for most people is a refrigerator. If you have a basement that is around 50 degrees Fahrenheit or cooler, 
that can be ideal or a back room that doesn't get a lot of heat that stays really cool. Sometimes in the middle of summer, that's a little bit more difficult. But if you wait until more the end of the harvest season as you're moving into fall and you've got a colder room or a garage that stays cold, you can get the picture there. Um, then you can store them there, but they can't stay at really room temperature where you're above 55 degrees Fahrenheit for a prolonged state of time after after they have went through their initial fermentation because they will keep fermenting and they will become over-fermented, meaning they're completely unpalatable if it's too fermented. It's not really a safety issue. And then you'll get into texture issues. Well, we'll begin to break down. And if you go a really long time, then, you know, it becomes too strong and it can break down too much. And then you're just going to have to toss it. So fermenting is something that you can do, like I said, minimal equipment. And that's something that I've been putting to practice a lot this year because, unfortunately, we've had a very, very cool summer, even by Pacific Northwest standards. We were extremely cool throughout June and the first half of July. Believe it or not, we had highs that were 55 degrees. I kid you not, in July, the high for the day. We actually, July 1st, we built we built a fire in the wood stove. It was so cold. It was 55 degrees Fahrenheit and raining. That was the high for the day, July 1st here. And finally, mid-July, we did warm up some. But even now, at the time of this recording, it is August. And our overnight lows, they're down into the 40s, guys. In August, which just, as you can tell from my voice, it pains me because my warm weather vegetables like cucumbers and tomatoes, my tomatoes, thankfully, the majority of them are in my high tunnel, so it's a little bit warmer in there for them. But once overnight lows start dipping below 55 degrees Fahrenheit, those warm weather plants don't produce very well. It starts to put them in hibernation. They just don't do well when you have those cold temps. So even though we're a bit warmer, like we're warmer during the day, we're in the 70s right now, we'll have some more days that are in the 80s. Those overnight lows are down into the 40s. And so I don't really know how much I'm going to get cucumbers because The plants took so long to produce because it was cold for so long, even though they were sprouted and had a couple of leaves. I just started a week ago, I kid you not, starting to get a few cucumbers here and there. So I've been fermenting them. I've got a half gallon fermented. I've got a pint fermented. And then I was able to get three pints enough at one time to can. But with these overnight lows and us moving closer to September, which I know will be cooler temperatures and less daylight hours, etc., I don't know if I'm even going to get enough cucumbers to really can up. Now, thankfully, I had enough last year. We had an overabundance, really, of cucumbers that I did can extra. And I still have quite a few jars of uh, pickles that were canned from last year that are still good. They're on the shelf. They're just fine. And I'll have those to tide us over. So if you have an abundance of something, I'm really learning the value and preserving a bit more than I think we will need. And then if next year's crop isn't as good, then we've still got some. And if next year's crop is great, then I can just preserve a little bit less to meet our needs, knowing what we'll go through for a year, and then use the rest up fresh. Now, aside from obviously canning and then fermenting, which I kind of shared with you, I like to use fermenting when I've got a small amount of the harvest, or it's something that really shouldn't be canned. Most things that like cabbage, you can make sauerkraut and then can it. You do still ferment it and then can it. That's really the only safe way that you can can cabbage. You cannot press your canned cabbage. You cannot add cabbage to a soup and just willy-nilly like that. But you can do a fermented sauerkraut and then water bath can it. 
But when you do that, it does make it shelf stable. But the heat from the water bath canner, which is needed if you're going to put it in jars and seal it, kills all of the wonderful lactobacilli and the good prebiotics and probiotics that we get from our fermented food. So many people like to use fermented food, not just because it's a form of food preservation, preservation, but because it has got so many health benefits, especially to our gut, which of course then helps to boost our immune systems because a good portion of your immune system actually is in your gut. So the healthier your gut microbiome and your gut flora is, then you have a better immune system. So if you can it, however, it kills all of those things. <laughs> so most people don't like to can their sauerkraut. They're just going to keep it in their cold storage. But you've also got dehydrating. Now, of course, a dehydrator is going to give you a better ability to control the temperature of your dehydrated food. Now, I don't have an Excalibur. Excalibur are kind of known as like the Cadillac of dehydrators or a really good type of dehydrator, mainly because the air blows from the back instead of the top. And so it's an even temperature and even distribution of the heat and the airflow. And that's why a lot of people really like Excaliburs. I have a Nesco and I have had it for, I think, five or six years and I use it quite a bit. You can add trays to it and it does blow down from the top, but it's quite a bit less than the Excalibur and it has worked just fine for me. But what I really like about my Nesco compared to older dehydrators that I had in the past is I can select the temperature. So I can take it as low as 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what I use for all of my herbs because it keeps them raw. Then for fruits, I can put it to 125 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, vegetables 135 degrees Fahrenheit. And then if you're doing meat like jerky and stuff, you need it to be higher. I think it's 160 degrees Fahrenheit, but don't quote me. But I can adjust I can adjust that and pick my temperatures, which is really ideal when dehydrating. So if you don't have a dehydrator, yes, you can use your oven if you can get your oven to go down low enough temperature wise. But then you also need to prop open the door because dehydration for your food, it's not just heat, but it's also airflow and the movement of air to help dehydrate it. So you can use your oven, but you want to prop it open, get it down to a low temperature um, you can also air dry things, different herbs, and I have got a YouTube video up. You definitely want to go and check that out on the best time to harvest your certain herbs so that you're getting the absolute maximum flavor if it's culinary, but really we're talking about medicinal properties. So you want to make sure that you know when you're harvesting that herb, what parts, and the best time to harvest it for the maximum medicinal properties, and then the way that you dry them and store them also can impact the medicinal properties and the strength that is then available to when you go to use them. And so I walk you through all of that in my YouTube video. Again, I'll make sure it's linked to in the blog post that accompanies this and the show notes so that you can go and check that out. So you, when you're doing herbs that are things like leafy greens, that type of thing, you can, I recommend if you don't have a dehydrator that lets you go down low enough to that 95 degrees Fahrenheit, I recommend air drying. And the great thing is, is things like flowers and the aerial parts of herbs or things like basil, which is still the aerial parts, etc. Those you can dehydrate very, very easily without having any type of equipment, just using the air. Now, other forms of your food preservation is going to be using root cellar techniques. And heads up, y'all, I don't have a basement and I don't have a root cellar. 
I don't even have a garage. I don't actually even have a barn. There's quite a bit that we don't have. <laughs> but you can homestead successfully without all of those things. And you can use root cellaring techniques without any of those areas and store your vegetables for a very long time. Now, it is specific vegetables that this works with. It doesn't work with all of them. And I have a new book coming out. It's actually a planner. So if you have the family garden plan, which is my full on everything vegetable gardening book, then we created a planner. So it's a planner that has the year, the month, the weeks, and then you look at your week and it's broken down by day. There's charts in there, worksheets that help you take all of that information and actually implement it into your daily life so that you can track everything, keep records, make sure you're getting things planted at the correct time, taking notes, especially when you've had a wonky weather year like this year. So I can take notes for next year to help me try to combat that or notes of like, man, I should have planted this sooner or I should have done this. All of those types of things so that every single year your garden becomes better and better. And the other fun part is there are places to also put in your harvest yield. So you know how much from what you planted, how much you actually brought in and harvested, which is going to help you and myself because I made it for myself. <laughs> it helps me know, okay, I need to make these adjustments for next year based on what we had this year. So a lot of stuff. But the reason that I'm bringing that up is one, it's going to be available for pre-order super, super soon. Yay. And I am creating a pre-order bonus video and download guide, of course, so that you have the written material that you can print off all on how to properly cure your vegetables, which ones can be cured, ideal temps for each of them, and then storage so that you can use those root cellaring te techniques no matter if you have one or if you don't in your home. So that can be another really easy, great way to preserve your food that will last months if not a full year on some items. Now, aside from root celery, we also have freezing. Now, I know a lot of us don't like to use the freezer per se because, yes, it is dependent on, one, the freezer continuing to work. Amen. Our freezer, we had a freezer um, go out <laughs> before, and that is no fun if you've ever dealt with rotting meat because you didn't know that it quit working in the middle of summertime. It is not fun. Just putting that out there. And if the power goes out for extended periods of time and you don't have a generator, then yes, having your stuff in the freezer is not always ideal. But for the most part, is one, if it's a big, either an upright freezer or a chest freezer, as long as you do not open it for 24 hours and it is full, everything in there will be fine. If it's longer than 24 hours, then you're going to want to use a generator to keep it going, unless it's outside and it's during the middle of winter, which we've had happen before. We've had big snowstorms come through. Power was knocked out. It was out for days on end. But the outside temperature was in the 20s. The freezer was outside in an unheated pump house because there was no electricity for any type of heat lamp in there and it was just unheated. And so it was all fine. We didn't even have to run the generator because it just stayed frozen because it was frozen outside. 
but you can run your generator, which we've definitely had to do because we do have an upright freezer that is in the house in our laundry room. And when the power goes out for more than 24 hours, then we make sure that we run that to keep the food in there. So I'm well, I share that because I always have people that mention, well, you shouldn't use the freezer because if this happens, I'm fully aware of those things. We've been without power for two weeks before. So definitely, yes, the freezer in a power outage situation, that's a lot of food that could go to waste, but we have a backup generator. So that's not an issue for us. Yes, I know we have to have fuel to run it. You would be surprised at the things that people tell you um, sometimes, which I just always like, thank you for the information, but I still use my freezer. There are some things that just lend themselves very well to the freezer. Some of those things are going to be your summer squash. As I said, zucchini and summer squash, You can only can in relish form. Some pickles can be done with zucchini. My grandma's mustard pickles are fine to do with zucchini in place of cucumbers, which is probably the only way I'll be able to put that up this year because I don't have enough cucumbers. But you can't can your zucchini. I've also fermented zucchini pickles, actually, which were pretty good. We do prefer the cucumber ones, but those weren't bad. However, I will shred zucchini and freeze it to make bread with throughout the winter months, fall and winter months, but I also will cut it into coins or the smaller ones like into rounds. And if they're big rounds, slices, then I'll half them. So they're a quarter, but, or excuse me, they're not quartered, they're halved is what I meant to say. And then I will, I do not blanch when I shred the zucchini for bread. I found that it's just fine. I don't need to blanch it. But when I do it in the larger slices, I do steam blanch that for a few minutes, dunk it into ice water real quick, and then I freeze that. And I'll flash freeze it, so lay it out flat, kind of let it drain a little bit, obviously, after you've put it into that ice water. Lay it out flat on some cookie sheets with some parchment paper or silicone mats, whatever it is you have. Flash freeze it, put it in the freezer till it's frozen solid, and then pop them off of there and put them in Ziploc. I put them in large gallon Ziploc bags. You could put them in if you've got glass freezer containers, whatever. Needs to be something that you can seal up. You can also do this if you don't want to use the like gallon Ziploc bags, which I just reuse the ones in the freezer over and over and over again. However, we do have a vacuum sealer, so you could definitely vacuum seal them and then put them in the freezer. But I like to do them in the gallon bags because usually what happens is I will just open that bag and then I don't want to have to re-vacuum seal it later and I'll just grab a handful out and then add them to soups and stews or especially we do a Thai peanut sauce. Oh, and it is so good with chicken, you guys. And I do it in the Instapot. You could do it in a slow cooker, but I just add the frozen zucchini right to that. And it basically cooks down into nothing. So this is so fabulous because my son loves this dish. He, okay, my son is a teenager, but I tell you what, he has the picky taste buds of like a two-year-old. No joke. The kid is still the pickiest eater in our family. And so I love to do this because he loves this dish, but he has no idea that there's zucchini in it. So I can get him to eat zucchini and he is none the wiser. So I do like to put up quite a bit of our zucchini that way, which thankfully my zucchini is quite prolific this year. It does not seem to be bothered by those lower temps. It is just pumping out zucchini like a champ. So we're doing very well there. Broccoli, I will blanch and freeze broccoli. You can dehydrate broccoli and that's fine for like adding into different soups and that type of stuff where you're gonna let it simmer. But for my casseroles, I really like to have frozen blanched broccoli and then I can just add it in quick into some of my different casseroles and that lends itself really well or you could thought it's a little bit mushy like let's be real vegetables that have been blanched frozen and then thawed and then you go to cook them they are a little bit mushier than if you were just cooking them fresh but 
I'm totally fine with that. And then I'll serve it as a side with some type, usually of grated cheese on top. So those are the ways that we are putting up the majority of our crops this year. And I hope that that gave you some extra ideas. Oh, another thing, people sometimes are surprised by this. You can totally freeze cabbage. So I will do up, as I said, a good portion into sauerkraut and cortito, which cortito is a Spanish sauerkraut that is phenomenal. I will ferment those and do some kimchi and then put in the fridge for our cold storage. But I usually have excess cabbage. Now, cabbage also does do quite well out in the garden, especially if you have it planted for a fall garden. Cabbage will stay kind of in that dormant zone as long as you're not getting really heavy freezes where it's going through freeze and thaw cycles out in the garden. But you can also bring cabbage in and you can freeze whole heads of cabbage without blanching. Now, if you freeze the whole head of cabbage without blanching, you really want to be using it within about two months. You don't want to let it go very long because blanching when you're freezing stops a lot of the enzyme breakdown. And if you don't do it, it unfortunately, I've learned this the hard way with a lot of vegetables, you'll go to pull them out of the freezer, say three months from the time you froze them. They never taste right. You'll cook them. Texture is weird, even though you've cooked them fully. And the flavor is just off. And that's because those enzymes continued to do their work. And you didn't stop that enzyme action by blanching them. So if you freeze a whole head of cabbage, plan on using it within the next month or two. Then you don't have to blanch it, though, when you're going to make cabbage rolls, which is phenomenal. My cabbage roll recipe is on the website. It's one of our favorite things to make but you do need to use it in a relatively quick amount of time. But you can also take your cabbage and you can blanch that and then freeze it. That is something you could blanch it ahead of time in whole leaf form or whole head form, which is how I do cabbage rolls with fresh cabbages. You put it in boiling water, just the whole head for usually like two minutes, pull it out, let it cool, and then the leaves are soft enough you can peel them all off to stuff. Now you could just peel them all off and then freeze them that way from blanching. But you can also chop up, I would do rough chop, chop up that cabbage, freeze it, excuse me, blanch it, and then freeze it to do things like fried cabbage or to add to soups and stews, etc. Because again, we cannot safely can cabbage other than in the form of sauerkraut. So that is how we're preserving up quite a bit of our produce and we will be opening for new members in the Pioneering Today Academy the end of September. So if you're on my email list, you will get notified about that. And that is where I share all of the how-tos and all of our recipes and walk you through every single step of doing all of these different fermentation recipes, my full canning course, which you can get the full home canning with confidence e-course independently without being a member of the Pioneering Today Academy. But for my root cellaring and growing all of your vegetables and your fruit and preserving them using dehydration and fermenting, that is all available inside the Pioneering Today Academy. So definitely keep an eye out on your emails because we will be opening for new members very shortly. And also what we are doing for the month of September is leave a review of the podcast. And then you have to take a screenshot and message it to me on Instagram or Facebook. And the reason you have to do that is because if you leave a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify or however it is you listen to the podcast, I can't actually see, I can see the whatever your username is in the review, but I have no way of like knowing who you really are or your email address or how to contact you. So do that. And we, everybody that does that, 
leaves a review of the podcast, sends me a screenshot, either Facebook Messenger or Instagram. And then, of course, while you're on Instagram or Facebook, go ahead and share that. I am going to be putting your name in a drawing and you can win a copy of one of my books, including my newest one, which is the Family Garden Planner, that brand new planner that's releasing November, the first part of November. We will do a drawing the first week of October from everybody who has done that. Again, make sure you message me that. And you can win a copy, either a copy of my new planner or one of my other books, The Made From Scratch Life, Handmade, or The Family Garden Plan. Okay, on to our verse of the week, which we are in 1 Samuel and chapter 10. This is the amplified version of the Bible. And I am in verse 6. And then I'm also going to jump down to verse nine. Then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you will show yourself to be a prophet with them and you will be turned into another man. And when Saul had turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. And the reason that I wanted to share that verse with you, so that is um, in the Old Testament, obviously it's from Samuel, I already said that, but that is when Saul finds out from the Lord's prophet Samuel that he is going to be king of Israel, that God has chosen him to be the first king of Israel. But what I love about that is God changed Saul's heart. Now, later on down the road, Saul's heart didn't unfortunately stay with the Lord, which if any of you who know your Bible or your um, biblical history there, then you know that's when David became king. But in the beginning, Saul's heart was transformed and it turned him into another man and God gave him another heart. And that has been my prayer for myself lately is that God would create in me a new heart and make me a changed person in him. So the things that are not godly, and I'll be honest, there's a lot of attitudes and a lot of stuff in me, probably you too that or maybe you you have a more changed heart than I do that I'm not really proud of that if I hold it up against God's word and if Jesus was sitting in the room with me and I said that or thought that I wouldn't really be feeling too good about myself now that's the beauty of grace the Lord come gives us grace he gives us mercy he knows that we are sinners that's why he died on the cross for us and he will forgive us but I want him to change and renew my heart and to create a new creation in him from the inside out. Because we can do all types of things that may look right, right? But if our hearts aren't really in it and our hearts aren't changed, then it's kind of like just going through the motions. And I don't want that. I don't want to just go through the motions because it's supposed to be the right thing. I want to do the right thing for a love of the Lord and to actually be the person that believes and that feels those things and does them from the right motive. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and until next week, blessings and mason jars. Mm-hmm.